Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Warning by Joyce Marsh. Philip stepped out briskly through the gathering dusk. If he was to be back at his hotel in time for dinner, he would have to hurry. He shivered. The day had been overcast and chilly, and now, with the night coming on, it had turned quite cold. More like November than September, Philip thought gloomily. For the first few days of his holiday, the weather had not been kind, which was a pity, for this was a very special holiday. At 18, this was the first time that Philip had been away alone without either of his parents or a school party. He had chosen to come to Devon because he had already spent many childhood holidays here, when the sun had always seemed to shine on blue seas and pale white gold sands. But this was not the weather for lounging on the beach. Fortunately, however, this remote corner of Devon would offer a happy alternative in the lonely wilderness of its moors. Philip had already walked for miles, exploring the many little tracks and lanes which led off from the main road to meander through the wild heather before dropping down to the sea. He zipped up his anorak against the night wind, which stung his cheeks as it whistled through the stiff gorse and mingled with the plaintive call of distant night birds. Before him, the road stretched blankly for miles and Philip knew that he must walk at least as far as he could see before the welcoming lights of his hotel would come into sight. A little distance, he could see the white gleam of a signpost pointing with one rigidly outstretched arm. Philip was immediately interested. Here was yet another lane to explore. Tomorrow, perhaps. He came up to the signpost and stopped to read its directions. Pant. The rest of the name had long since been worn away by wind and weather, and it was hardly surprising that no one had bothered to repaint it, for the lane to Pant something or other was rough and so overgrown that it was almost non-existent. It seemed that few people these days traveled that way. Philip was so intent upon his speculations as to the possible ending to a place beginning Pant that as the ferocious snarling of a dog somewhere behind him came as a sudden shock. Even as he spun around, Philip had a second to notice that the wind had dropped, and except for the snarling growls, an eerie hush had descended on the moor. The dog was standing squarely in the middle of the road, barring his way. It was a spaniel, not a large dog, but, like all its breed, sturdily strong and muscular. It was staring at Philip with evil, white-ringed eyes, while its lips were lifted to show wicked, snarling teeth. Deep, rattling growls began in its throat and rose to a crescendo, ending in a menacing bark. Philip scowled. An evil-tempered brute like this should never be allowed out alone. He advanced on the dog, shouting and flapping his arms. Go on, get out of here! dog was not to be threatened off. It became even more menacing. 
Philip retreated slightly and looked around. There was no one in sight, and there was no house or village for miles. It was odd that such a beautiful little animal should be out on the moors alone, for it looked well cared for. The light rippled and gleamed on its long silky ears and rich golden-brown coat, whilst its domed, intelligent-looking head was highlighted by a flash of soft, pale blonde hair. Suddenly, with a little chill, Philip realized that he not ought to be able to see so much detail in the dusky light. It was almost as if the dog was lit form within. There was something uncanny about this dog, and Philip became anxious to slip past it and be on his way as quickly as possible. He took a step first to one side and then the other, but the dog was not deceived by this maneuver. It moved with him. Then Philip saw the powerful muscles tense for a spring, and instinctively he braced himself to ward off the fearsome snapping jaws. The dog was frighteningly quiet now. The light flickering along its rippling muscles as with a powerful lunge, it launched itself at Philip. The dog sprang high. It was close enough for him to see the slimy strings of saliva drooling from its open jaws. He flung up an arm to protect his face. Then suddenly, in mid-leap, it vanished. In all the stories Philip had read about people who encountered ghosts, they were described as searching for a natural explanation when their apparition disappears. But he knew at once that no normal body movement had carried the dog away. One second it was there, then poof, it was gone. He was quite gratified to find that he was not in the least afraid. On the contrary, he was relieved. The real dog might have given him a nasty bite, but common sense told him that a ghost dog could do him no real harm. Nevertheless, this was an eerie spot, and he had no mind to linger, so he set off again at a brisk jog trot. As he ran, a smug little smile played about his lips. He was quite pleased to have joined the ranks of those who have actually seen a ghost. He imagined himself relating his experience and creating quite a stir in the office where he worked. However, if the story was to have its full impact, it needed a bit of background. He promised himself that he would make a few local inquiries about a fierce little cocker spaniel. The pleasant purplish-gray dusk had darkened into gloomy night, and as he ran... Philip's light-hearted acceptance of his ghostly vision began to fade. He became increasingly nervous and oppressed by the eerie quietness of the moor. He could just make out the clumps of heather and gorse growing close to the roadside. But beyond that, the moor seemed to drop away into black emptiness. He had the nerve-wracking impression that he and the road along which he ran were silently suspended in a vast nothingness. To add to his nervousness, he realized that he was not completely alone. Once or twice, he glimpsed a vague shape moving through the bushes by the roadside and keeping pace with him as he ran. Instinctively, Philip knew that it was the dog. 
He slowed his pace and took several deep breaths. He was surprised to find himself trembling, and he had to fight against an unreasoning urge to turn around and flee along the way he had come. Anxiously, he peered ahead into the distance, and to his relief, he could just make out the tiny little pinpricks of light, which must be the village and the safe comfort of his hotel. Eager to be home, he went on again. But he had moved only a few paces when he was puzzled to see a faintly glowing shape lying in the roadway some little distance ahead. His heart thumped with an inexplicable fear as he forced himself to walk towards the unknown thing which lay between him and safety. He came very close and was within a foot of it before he could recognize the box-like shape for what it was. Then he stopped dead, and a shuddering thrill of cold horror ran through him, for he found himself staring down at a gleaming brand new coffin. Horribly abandoned, it lay there on the road with an unnatural radiance coming from the highly polished wood and finely wrought metal handles. A brass nameplate, ominously blank, was set into the lid, and carefully arranged along the top was a single, pure white lily. It was so close that, despite his horrified revulsion, Philip bent forward to touch it. The wood was curiously unresisting and so cold that Philip felt as if his fingers were sinking into slime. He tried to draw back, but his hand was suddenly seized from inside and tightly held by icy fingers. For one horrifying minute, the boy felt as if some awful dead thing was trying to use him to drag itself free of its grave. With a shuddering effort, he freed his hand and leapt back. Then, with horrified fascination, he watched as the coffin began to disappear. It did not vanish instantly as the dog had done, but slowly the kind of lingering reluctance it sank into the road. The last thing Philip saw was the flower, the fat white lily, and then the surface closed over it. Philip examined the roadway. There was no mark to show where the coffin had stood. A trembling fear began in the boy's knees and flooded through his body, and he began to run and he did not stop until he could see the comforting welcome of the light flooding out through the open door of the hotel. The next day, Philip made a few tentative inquiries, but he could find no one had heard of a dog haunting the main road over the moor. He discovered that the lane near the spot where he had seen the dog led to a place known locally as Pantacom Bay but his description of the ghostly spaniel was greeted with much amused disbelief that he did not bring himself to mention the second and more horrifying apparition. He pretended to accept that the vanishing dog had been no more than a trick of the light. Nevertheless, he brooded on his experience. Fearfully, he told himself that the dog must have appeared as a kind of warning, 
and the coffin was the forecast of some frightful tragedy to come if he did not heed that warning. One thing was for sure. He decided nothing was going to tempt him to walk along that particular road again. However, as his holiday neared its end, he found that he had explored as much of the district as he could without traveling on the main road. The weather was still too chilly for sporting on the beach, and he was beginning to feel bored. So when he heard of an old fishing village whose inhabitants had long ago been driven away by the erosion of the sea, he could not resist going to explore, even though it meant walking over the haunted road. In the crowded comfort of the hotel lounge, he made his plans and confidently told himself that his chances of being haunted for the second time were very slight. Nevertheless, he set off early promising himself that he would be sure to start for home in good time to be safely back before dusk. The village was a long way off, and it was difficult to find. He did not arrive until well into the afternoon, and by the time he had explored the ruined, tide-washed cottages, the bright glitter of the sun had darkened to a glowing orange. Even as he started out for home, he knew that he could not possibly pass the lane to Pantacom Bay before dusk. Nevertheless, he hurried, in a desperate bid to beat the sun as it fell downward towards the edge of the moor. It was a hopeless race, and one that he could not win. His eyes were already straining through the purple-gray dusk as he saw the signpost pointing to Pantacom Bay. With sinking dread, he felt once again the hushed stillness descend about him. Then he saw the dog. It was in the middle of the road, not snarling or growling yet, just waiting. By its weird inner light, he could see the rich golden coat and the deep brown eyes gazing fixedly towards him. The dog lifted its snout to the sky and sent out a low, whining wail. Philip felt the hairs prickle on his scalp, and his hands became moist with sweat of fear. Instinctively, he knew that if the dog was there, it was a warning that the other thing would be there too, lying in the road waiting to deliver its horrible prophecy of some mysterious doom. He walked on. There was nothing else to do. Somehow, he had to find the courage to pass the dog and then the dreadful abandoned coffin. As he drew nearer, the spaniel lifted its lips in a snarl, and the growling began deep in its throat. Philip's little store of courage deserted him. He sprang back, looking wildly around. Surely other people used this road. There had been cars enough this morning. Why could not one come along now? But the moor was deserted and eerily quiet. Then his eyes fell upon the lane to Pentacom. Of course. Why had he not thought of it before? The lane was rough, and heaven knew where it led, but it was a means of escape. He darted down it, running as fast as he could over the rutted surface. Once he looked behind, and the dog was following, gliding smoothly and silently, yet warily, as if challenging him to turn back. 
About 50 yards down the lane, he glimpsed the thatch roof of a cottage nestling amidst a solitary clump of trees. And to his enormous relief, there were cheerful lights blazing out of the windows. He ran towards it, but as his hand reached for the gate, he saw the dog bound forward. Its stumpy little tail was vibrating merrily, and it bounced slightly, as dogs do when they are pleased. The spaniel was no more than a foot or two away when, just as it done before, the little dog abruptly vanished. At once, all the little night sounds returned. The evening breeze carried the faint tang of the sea as it rustled pleasantly through the trees. Everything now seemed so normal that Philip was suddenly ashamed of his previous panic. He took his hand away from the gate and decided to go on, not back to the road. His newly returned courage was not quite equal to that. But down the lane, Panticom. The rough track narrowed and became even more overgrown as it dropped steeply down towards the sea. If the village of Panticom had ever existed, there was no stick or stone left of it now. The road eventually led on to the cliff edge, where it curved around following the line of the bay before it turned back across the moor to rejoin the main road a hundred yards or so beyond Philip's hotel. It was more than three years before Philip returned to Devon. He was that much older and the pressures of business did not allow him so much time for walking. Therefore, the next time he took that familiar road across the moor, he was driving, and in some haste, for he had a dinner appointment. With a twinge of apprehension, he realized that it was dusk, and fading into night, he saw once again the tall signpost still rigidly pointing to the non-existent Pantacom Bay. Nervously, he tried to push aside the memory of the snarling dog, which had twice barred his way at the spot. He desperately wanted to press down his foot and speed past, but he could not. Some compulsion stronger than his own will forced him to brake hard and bring his car to a slightly screeching halt. He half expected to see the snarling dog still standing there, but the road was empty. It stretched before him, blankly inviting. Suddenly, and with an unreasoning surge of relief, he knew what he must do. Wrenching at the wheel, he sent his car leaping down the lane, which was now even more overgrown and deeply rutted. The thatched roof of the cottage soon came into sight, and Philip, curious to know if it was still occupied, slowed down almost to a stop. And there, sitting by the gate, was the dog, the same beautiful little golden cocker spaniel. It was gazing expectantly up the lane as if it was waiting patiently just for Philip to appear. As soon as the car slowed, the dog trotted towards it and jumped up to look in the side window. With some relief, Philip noticed that the scrap of its feet against the car door sounded assuringly real. For a long moment, the dog gazed at Philip with eyes full of dumb appeal, 
Then it jumped down and trotted back to the cottage. After a few steps, however, the dog stopped, looked back at the car, and gave a short, sharp bark. There was no mistaking its meaning. The animal was asking Philip to follow. Mystified, the young man allowed himself to be led up to the cottage door. It was not locked and opened at his touch. Inside, the house was heavy with the scent of flowers and fresh, clean smell of wax polish. But there was a hushed stillness which told Philip that the cottage was empty. Still mystified, he paused. It was embarrassing to find himself here as an uninvited stranger in a stranger's home. But the dog, it seemed, had no time for the niceties of human behavior. He gave sharp, impatient barks and, in his own unmistakable way, demanded that Philip follow him to the back of the house and into the kitchen. The light was burning in here. But at first glance, this room, too, appeared to be empty. The dog now became frantic. It seized Philip's trouser leg and began to tug at it with all his strength. Philip was pulled further into the room, and it was then he saw the girl lying on the floor. She was about his own age and very pretty, except for the deathly pallor of her face. She was lying still, so still that it was impossible to see if she was breathing. One arm was flung out, and a little fountain of bright red blood was bubbling out from a long gash in her wrist. Philip had a moment to notice the butcher's knife on the floor and that piece of frozen meat on the table. The girl must have been trying to cut the meat with the knife and slipped. He dropped to his knees beside her, and his finger probed her upper arm for the heavy, throbbing pulse, which was pumping away her life's blood. With his other hand, he ripped off his tie. And when he found the pulse, he tied the tie tightly around her arm at this point. There was a spoon on the table, and he thrust it through the tie and used it as a handle to twist and tighten his improvised tourniquet. To his relief, Philip saw the heavy drain of blood ease to a thin trickle. But there was no time to lose. The girl was scarcely breathing, and in no more than fifteen minutes the tourniquet must be removed. Bending down, he scooped her up in his arms. She was very slight, and her weight scarcely hampered him at all as he raced back to his car and dumped her trifle unceremoniously on the back seat. The dog was plainly not going to be separated from his mistress. He scrambled into the car beside Philip and stood on the seat, gazing down at her pathetic helplessness. Philip's car was fast, and he knew how to push it to its limit. Thankfully, his memory served him well, for he remembered every twist and turn in the road as he raced across the moor and down the steep road to the nearest town where he knew there was a hospital. It was a hair-raising ride, but in little more than ten minutes, Philip was able to hand over his charge into the calm, efficient care of doctors and nurses. Now there was nothing more he could do except wait and he waited a long time before someone came to tell him that the girl would live. She was very weak from the loss of blood, but she was young and strong and would soon recover. Philip had been in the hospital for so long that he had forgotten the dog. 
and it came as a surprise when he returned to the car and found the spaniel still patiently waiting. With a slight hesitancy, Philip put out his hand and for the first time touched the soft hair on the dog's head. He ran his hand over the spaniel's flanks and was almost surprised to feel the warm throb of life. Well, old boy, your mistress is going to be all right, but it looks as if I'm going to be stuck with you, at least until tomorrow. The swift wagging of the short, stumpy tail seemed to indicate that the dog had no objection to this arrangement. It was very early next morning when Philip returned to the cottage. Ostensibly, he went to take the dog home, but as he readily admitted to himself, his real interest was in the very pretty girl. The cottage door was opened by a plump, middle-aged lady with a flat country face. The dog hurled himself upon her, excitedly nibbling her apron and leaping up to lick her face. Well, bless me, if it isn't our Mufti! Then you must be the young gentleman saved our girl. Well, do come in, sir. We just don't know how to thank you for what you did, nor give praise enough for the miracle which sent you down our lane last night. Why, yours must be the first car that's come down here for weeks. Then, to beat all, you stopped and came in. What blessed chance made you do that? It was the dog, Mufti. He made me come into your cottage. Oh, you dear thing. She bent down to give Mufti a bone-crushing hug. So you helped save your mistress. And to think, we nearly took you with us. You see, sir, she turned back to Philip, father and me were away to market yesterday, and we usually take Mufti with us to mind the van. Only yesterday, he wouldn't come. The little rascal ran off and hid somewhere. So we went without him. What a shock it was when he came back and found the police waiting to tell us what had happened. Lord, mercy, my blood runs cold to think on it. There's no doubt our Lily would have been in her coffin by now if you hadn't come along. Lily, the single white flower lying along the lid of that ghostly coffin, had been a Lily. Dimly. Philip began to understand. The coffin might have been for the girl, Lily, but it had not been a prophecy of inevitable doom. It had been a warning of tragedy which could be averted. It's really uncanny, Lily's mother was saying. The way that dog would just wouldn't come with us, and it's as if he knew he needed to be here. It is even more uncanny than you know, Philip thought as he gazed down at the excited Mufti. Have you had Mufti long? he asked on impulse. No, not long. He's Lily's dog, really. We used to have another golden cocker, only he died very suddenly about three years ago. Lily was heartbroken. And she gave us no peace until we got her another one just like him. So... It was not this real living dog, but the spirit of a dead dog which had lingered on, waiting for a stranger who would heed his warning and remember it. When Lily was well enough to come home, Philip went to the cottage very often, and they became friends. 
somehow he could never bring himself to tell her of the vision which three years before had warned him that one day he was to be the means of saving her life. Years later, when Lily and Philip were comfortably married, they would sit before their fire with an agey mufti snoring at their feet. Sometimes they would talk of the accident which had brought them together, then Mufti would open one lazy eye to gaze up at Philip. There was a deep, indefinable expression in that one eye as the old dog slowly lifted its lip in a silent snarl, which was very odd, for Mufti never snarled at anyone, least of all his beloved master. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me. Your ghost is Deborah Marley. And thank you to our sponsor, Dr. Skipper, for supporting the podcast. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts, or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, please visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings. Sleep well. Thank you.